We are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Esther. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, you are welcome to use one of the Bibles in the Purack uh, in front of you. As we've been saying throughout this series, Esther is the book in which there is no mention of God. I know, it's odd. Last week, we covered chapter 4, so I want to just quickly recap that chapter so we know where we're picking up here in the beginning of chapter 5. Mordecai makes Queen Esther aware of the edict that was sent throughout the Persian Empire. And if you aren't familiar with the book of Esther, you haven't been here, this edict was an edict that declared that all Jews throughout the empire must be destroyed 11 months from the time that the edict was written. When Esther hears this from her cousin Mordecai, she's distressed, but she tells Mordecai that there's little that she can do. Uh, The reason that she says that there is little that she can do is because not only is a law that is established by the king irrevocable, but we also learned in chapter 4 that no one can go into the presence of the king without first being called. The consequence of doing so, we learn, is death. But Mordecai pushes back. He pushes back. He points out that as a Jew, Esther ultimately will not survive herself either once it's discovered that she is Jewish. If she chooses not to help, Mordecai says, she will lose her spiritual identity and again likely be destroyed like the rest of her fellow Jews. It's at this moment that Esther seems to have some kind of awakening, some kind of transformation. She realizes what must be done. She sees what love requires. So Esther tells Mordecai to gather all the Jews in Susa together for three days of fasting. After these three days of fasting, Esther will then go into the presence of the king, and she says, if I perish, I perish. But what we see going on in chapter 4 is Esther choosing her spiritual identity over her cultural identity. And so where we leave off in chapter 4, we we have these lingering questions. Now what? What's going to happen? How will the king respond? Will Esther lose her life? We we, we enter into chapter 5 with dramatic tension. Now, I'm going to pray for us. I'm not going to read, because we're covering chapters 5 and 6 this morning. Uh, I'm not going to read both those chapters at once. Uh, We'll read portions of the chapters as we move through the the text. But before we get into it, uh, let me go ahead and pray for us. Holy Spirit, you are here with us. We pray now that you would take us into the Word of God, that you would open it to us, open our minds, our hearts. We pray that you would draw us into it in such a way that we would actually indwell the story of Scripture, that we, like Esther, would experience some kind of awakening, some kind of transformation. We trust that even in this ordinary moment, you are capable of doing extraordinary things. So we look to you. We trust that you will do it. For Jesus' renown, for his glory and honor in our lives and in our city, we pray in his name, amen. Let's zoom in to begin with on the first five verses of Esther chapter 5. This is the scene in which Esther goes into the presence of the king. She goes into the throne room of the king. 
She prepares herself first. The three days of fasting have passed, and on the third night, she puts on her royal robes in preparation to go visit the king. Now, before we uh, move any further, I want you to think about what those three days must have been like for Esther. You know, it's easy for us to just jump ahead and to get into um, the fast-moving pace of this narrative, but imagine what it must have been like for Esther during those three days. Imagine the torment that she must have felt, the agony that she must have felt, the torture that she must have felt, because the situation in which she, that she faced was unknown to her. There was a great deal of uncertainty. What would happen? She is totally putting herself out there. She's totally risking herself. She could be killed immediately by going into the presence of the king, and she had three days to think about this. So the time finally comes. We're told that she stands in the inner court of the king's palace. The king is sitting on his royal throne, and he sees Esther. And in verse 2, it says that when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. I want to throw a question out there. Why did she find favor in his sight? Answer, we're not told. (laughs) We don't know. Um, remember, one of the things that we've been saying about the book of Esther um, as we've been going through it is that there are so many places in which we want to know more. We want to have more details, but we just simply don't. There are also so many places where we wish the author would have provided us more commentary, yet we don't get that commentary. So we don't know exactly why Esther found favor in the eyes of the king, but she did, and it's significant. The king then at this point holds out his golden scepter, and Esther touches its tip. Now, I want to refer you back to chapter 4, verse 11, because in chapter 4, verse 11, we're told that all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. So Esther finds favor in the sight of the king. The king holds out the golden scepter to her and she touches its tip. So Esther approaches. And in verse 4, the king asks her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? This is the first time that Esther is addressed as Queen Esther in the book of Esther. I feel like I just said the name Esther lots of times there. But this is the first time in which she is addressed as queen. And the king wants to know, what is it that brings you here, Queen Esther? What is your request? He goes on, it shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. Now, this was an idiom used by ancient royalty. It was not intended Uh, to be taken literally. Esther would have understood that. It just simply meant that the king desired to generously grant whatever her request was. Esther tells the king that she wants the king and Haman, remember Haman is um, the king's right-hand man, basically. Haman is the one who, um, without identifying the people as the Jews, 
uh, influenced the king to write this edict that would enforce all of the Jews in the Persian Empire to be destroyed. So Haman is that guy. So Esther says, I want you and Haman at a feast that I have prepared. Quite a request. Not probably what you were expecting, huh? You probably were expecting for her to just come right out and say, Haman is a terrible guy. Haman is going to have me killed and all my people do something about Haman. But she doesn't just jump to that right away. She says, I want Haman and you at a feast that I will prepare. It is here that Esther emerges as the main character in the book of Esther. It is here that Esther emerges as the heroine of the book of Esther. She will be the dominant character from this point on. So I want you to track that because that's what's going to be happening as we move forward here. And this is not surprising because, as I mentioned, in chapter 4, Esther has a conversion of sorts. It's in that moment of crisis where Mordecai has laid out for her the option. You either go to the king, you go to the king and you do something about this, or out of fear, you don't. Either way, basically, you're going to die. You're going to die. Because if you don't go to the king one way or another, it's going to be found out that you are a Jew and you likely might be put to death as well. But if you do, you obviously might be put to death as well. So as we said last week, that is basically the situation in which Esther finds herself. And she has this moment of decision. What will she decide? What will she do? How will she respond to this? The options are basically, will she choose her spiritual identity? Will she deliberately, intentionally attach herself to the people of God, to the Jewish people, and to the story of God, Or will she choose her cultural identity and completely, once for all, attach herself to the story of the Persian Empire and all that it represents? And in that moment of crisis, she chooses her spiritual identity. This is a moment of awakening, a moment of transformation, a moment of conversion, if you will. Esther is now being active in this story. I think it was last week that we we looked at how up until this point in the story, Esther really has been passive. She was the one who was essentially abducted and brought into this process, uh, this beauty queen um, process where she ends up as queen. She did not choose that path. She did not uh, move towards that, but it is what happened to her. She was passive in everything that was happening to her. But now, particularly in this moment of awakening, Esther begins to take responsibility for her life. She recognizes that there is an opportunity here for her to indwell God's story in real ways. Karen Jobes in her commentary at this point says that as the four major characters are introduced in the story, the king, Haman, Mordecai, and Esther, one would last ex- least expect Esther, the woman who, did her, who hid her Jewish identity, to emerge as the respected leader. But that is exactly what is happening, and we will see that unfold even more after this uh, scene here. Let's look now at verses 6 through 8, this feast. And it's actually the first of two feasts that are going to happen. We're not going to cover the second feast today. We'll do that next time. 
So Haman and the king come to this feast. And after dinner, they're sitting around drinking wine. And the king finally wants to know, Esther, what is your request? What is it that you want? Esther says, I want you and Haman to come back tomorrow for another feast. What is going on here? Is it just that Esther likes to cook? She likes to feast? What is the deal? But that is her request up to this point. Esther promises the king that at that second feast, she will reveal her ultimate request. She'll reveal what it is that she went into the throne room of the king for in the first place. Verses 9 through 14. This is one of those incredibly ironic scenes in the book of Esther. Actually, that's an understatement. This is the most ironic scene in the book of Esther. In fact, this might be the most ironic scene in the whole of the Bible. Haman leaves the, fe- the feast, and he's all jazzed up. He's all jazzed up. He thinks that he's something special. He thinks he's really important, really significant, and in a sense, he is, in terms of his role and the influence that the king has given him. But he thinks that he's such a big deal that he gets to attend these feasts with just the king and the queen. He has no idea what is going on behind the scenes. He has no idea the plan that is unfolding, but he thinks that he is a big deal because he gets to go to feasts like this. His mood quickly turns sour because he sees Mordecai, the guy that he hates, the guy that is tormenting him because he refuses to bow down to Haman and to acknowledge his power and his influence. And so every time Haman sees Mordecai, he's reminded of that, and it drives him crazy. But we're told in verse 10, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Haman gets home. He brings his wife and his friends together. And we are, in this scene, confronted with Haman's pride in a way that maybe we haven't yet been in Esther. Verse 11, he recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. You get what's going on here? He brings his wife and his friends together to basically tell them how important he is, how special he is, how wonderful he is. But, he adds this, Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Haman cannot get over Mordecai. Haman's pride makes it so that he is unable almost to think about anything else except for the fact that Mordecai refuses to acknowledge how special Haman believes that he is. At this point, Haman's wife and friends devise a plan. Plan is this, have a gallows built and convince the king to have Mordecai hanged. Mordecai's not going anywhere. He's going to continue to uh, get into your head like this. He's going to continue to drive you crazy. So the best solution, let's have him killed. He's dead. He can't do that anymore. And everyone else, it seems, acknowledges you, makes you feel special. So you'll be set at that point. Do you think Haman likes that idea? Of 
course he does. He loves the idea. It pleases him. He delights in this idea. That brings us to chapter 6. Let's look at the first three verses. So that night, the king can't sleep. He's having a sleepless night. Have you ever had one of those? I feel like I've had uh, lots of those in the last couple years. So I know what it's like to have a sleepless night. This sleepless night of the king is the turning point in the book of Esther. Now, it is not the climax of the book. We haven't quite gotten there yet. But this is the turning point of the book. This is where everything begins to change. It's where the great reversal that's going to take place begins. This is the starting point. This is the turning point. The king, not being able to sleep, orders for the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, to be read to him. And as this book is being read to him, he's reminded of the fact that Mordecai's deed from five, some five years ago came up in the book. Now, do you remember what that deed was? Mordecai overheard two of the king's officials talking about devising a plot to bring harm against the king. So Mordecai tells Esther about it. Esther goes and tells the king. They investigate it, find out it's true. Those two officials are hanged. Mordecai protects and ultimately possibly saves the king. And for such an act as that, a person should be honored. They should be set apart uh, with some kind of distinction, but the king forgot to do so. But it just so happens, he has a sleepless night. He asks for these, uh, the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles be to be read to him, and he's reminded of his oversight concerning Mordecai. Verses 4 through 10. This is where the irony really begins to jump off the pages of the story of Esther. Just at this time, when the king asked the, whoops, the king asked the question, what was done for Mordecai to honor him and to set him apart? He's told nothing, uh, and this does not sit well with the king. Um, now, he has a political agenda here because it uh, served uh, kings well to honor somebody who saves your life, right? It teaches the people that if you do similar things, if you come across plots against the king and you step in and save the king, you too will be honored and set apart. So uh, it doesn't sit well with the king that he forgot to do this. This is something that he would want to do. Just at this time, Haman walks into the court of the king. Now, I want you to realize something. Why is it that Haman has come into the court of the king? You remember? He has come into the court of the king to make his case for Mordecai to be hanged. That is why Haman is there, and he walks in in the middle of this conversation. Verse 6, the king asks him this question. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? You ready for more of Haman's pride? He responds, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? But Haman goes on to answer the question. All right, you want to know the answer to the question, what should be done to the man whom um, the king delights to honor? This man should be dressed in royal robes, worn by the king. A crown should be set upon his head, and he should be placed on a horse that was ridden by the king at one point. 
And he is to be led through the city square, proclaiming before him, this shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the height of the irony comes in verse 10. The king says this. I mean, I just can't even imagine being in this moment, in this scene. King says to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Haman has walked into the court of the king to have Mordecai killed, and he walks out of the court, the king's court, on a mission to honor Mordecai. Verses 11 through 13. I'll read verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse And he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. This is incredible irony. Could you imagine what Mordecai must be feeling in his inner person during all of this? The man that he hates the most, the man that he despises to the point of devising a plot to kill him, He is now parading him around the city square, honoring him on behalf of the king. After this, Mordecai returns to the king's gate. Haman returns home. Haman never did get to mention that whole thing about the plot or or the plan to uh, hang Mordecai, did he? So Haman tells his wife and his friends, they've gathered together again, he tells them about what happened. And this is basically what they say to him. Oh, no. Haman, one question here. Mordecai does not happen to be a Jew, does he? He does. Haman, you're screwed. It's basically what's going on here. You will fall before him. And that brings us to the end of chapter 6. I'm going to leave you hanging Uh, in the narrative. Uh, It's not the end of the sermon, um, but I'm going to leave you hanging. We're not going to progress any further in the storyline this morning. But I now want to talk about um, some application from this narrative. And I I really want to draw out two points. The first point is that we have a role in God's story. And the second point is that, but it is still God's story. So we have a role in God's story but it is still God's story. As we've seen, as we've talked about, Esther made a decision in that moment of crisis. She chose her spiritual identity over her cultural identity. She embraced the fact that she belongs to the Jewish people. She belongs to the people of God, chosen by God, set apart in the world by God in order to bring healing to the world around them. She attaches herself to that story in that moment of crisis. She attaches herself to the God of the Jewish people and all of his promises to them. In other words, Esther begins to become more rooted. When Esther made her decision, she didn't know how the story was going to unfold. She didn't know how it was going to end. This is like so many of the decisions that we face in life. We come to a crossroads. There's a decision to be made. 
and we make our decision, hopefully, ideally, making a decision that we believe uh, best will bring glory to Jesus, and we believe that we're being led in that direction now, uh, wisdom, decision-making, that's another sermon. Um, but hopefully we make a decision uh, out of a desire to please God. But once we begin to act on that decision, once we begin to step forward, or even in that moment in which we make the decision, we do not know how things will unfold. We do not know how it's going to end. This is the nature of life. This is the nature of faith, even more specifically. She could not have known that the decision to risk her life, she did not know, that the decision to risk her life would be the decision that would ultimately fulfill her destiny as well as the destiny for God's people in the Persian Empire. Esther has this awakening. She experiences this transformation, and now she is deliberately, consciously indwelling God's story. She made a decision. She chose her spiritual identity and the story of God over her cultural identity and the story of the Persian Empire. And that is a decision that each and every one of us faces on a daily basis in a variety of decisions, some larger than others. But we are constantly faced with the decision, will we choose our spiritual identity and our attachment to the story of God or will we choose our cultural identity and our attachment to the story of America, the story of the Western world, the story of the American dream, whatever you want to call it? We are regularly and constantly faced with this decision. Esther has an awakening. She has a transformation. She's made alive. She comes to see that the story of God is where it's at. She comes to see that the, her cultural identity and the story of the Persian Empire, while temporarily it might provide uh, fulfillment, some level of happiness, uh, protection, and comfort, in the end she will die. And in her death, she will actually kill others. Now let's take this other story, the story of God and spiritual identity. The end result of that story is that um, in this life you will die as well. However... There's more to it than that. That in your choice to live, because when you choose your spiritual identity and the story of God, you're choosing to live in your life and ultimately death, ultimate death, you will actually bring others to life as opposed to killing them along the way. Now, we're going to talk more about these dynamics. And with the story of God, we are promised that this life, what we see, what we touch, is not all that there is, that there is such a thing as eternal life. That our story, in the context of God's story, does not end when we die in this life. It actually, in a sense, only begins. Now, I want you to consider Haman and contrast Haman with Esther. Now, this sermon is not, don't be like Haman, be like Esther, Kind of is, but I'm going to say more than that. But for now, we'll just say that. Be like Esther, don't be like Haman. Haman lives for himself. I mean, you don't need me to cite all the examples again. This man is full of pride. He's full of himself. He's addicted to power, and it eats him alive. It actually is going to kill him, literally. His addiction to power, his obsession with himself is going to kill 
He has everything on the surface, doesn't he? He's been given this incredible influence and power by the king. He is second in command, second in power in the Persian Empire. He has everything at his fingertips, but he doesn't have one thing. The devotion of one insignificant Jewish man. And that's apparently everything to him. I want to share with you um, something that David Foster Wallace said um, in a commencement speech a few years ago. I've shared this multiple times. This isn't the first time. And I wanted to avoid sharing it again, but it just gets at it so well. Um, He writes this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He goes on to say this, pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Sound familiar? Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. This is exactly what is playing out in the life of Haman. And to cite the specific example, Haman worships power. And as a result, he feels weak and afraid. He feels the need for more and more power over others to keep his fear at bay. Now, we talked about this several weeks ago, that people like the king, people like Haman, come across as incredibly secure, right? They come across as those with power, those who have have it all, and yet they are the most insecure characters in the story. Haman gets himself killed because of his unbelievable insecurity rooted in his selfish pride. Going back to Esther, this is what Esther was faced with. Now, we're not brought into... um, her mind and her heart during that time of decision or those three days of fasting. But that decision that she made to choose her spiritual identity over her cultural identity was not an easy one. It was was one that produced agony, torment, and torture. And that is the case for us. When we choose our spiritual identity or a spiritual identity over a cultural identity, We are not promised that things will go well for us. In fact, we're actually told that in many ways things will go poorly for us. That people in our culture will respond maybe with hostility toward us. That we will be marginalized for our beliefs. All of these kinds of things. This produces agony. It produces torment and torture. And so every day we are faced with the temptation I don't want to feel marginalized. I want to feel like I have power. I want to feel like I have acceptance and approval. And so, ugh, I don't know what to decide. Even though the choice of the spiritual identity produces agony, torment, and torture, 
It is life. It is the road, the path of abundant life. It is the path that Jesus himself chose. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we talked about it last week. Father, if there be another way, please do that way. Take this cup from me, but if it be your will, I'll do it. Jesus did it. He chose the path of torment, torture, and agony. And what did it ultimately produce? It produced life, abundant life. It saved, it rescued others. Here's what Esther's awakening ultimately did inside of her. It created a stamina, an energy, a capability to spend herself on behalf of others. In other words, she was freed to finally love. This is what a spiritual identity produces in us. It produces in us a love for God and a love for our neighbor, demonstrated in a willingness to spend ourselves, to lay down our lives even for our neighbor in worship to God. We can't avoid risk. We're faced with risk all the time. In those decisions uh, between our spiritual identity, uh, cultural identity, and then in other decisions in life, we can't avoid risk. In order to seek the common good of the city, in order to bring life to a world of death, we must risk. We must spend ourselves on behalf of others. Living for self kills us. Living for self kills others. And so as we look out into our city, as we look out into our world, we are faced with all kinds of brokenness. All kinds of situations in which, as we look at them, we are faced with the decision of comfort for ourselves or putting ourselves out there on behalf of others. And I have to admit that, for me personally, I choose the path of comfort more than I'd like to be honest about. And it produces like a a sort of death in me. Because whenever I do it, I know that I've missed an opportunity. Even though if I would have chose the other path, it would have probably produced some form of agony, torment. It would have been hard. It would have produced love. It would have produced a deeper level of love inside of me. Now, we're going to, in in a moment we wrap up, we're going to talk about where we get this love. Like, where do we find it? But I want to make the point as we wrap up that this is still God's story. So we've highlighted Esther and her faith and the decision that she made. We have a role to play in God's story, but it is still God's story. Like I pointed out, the king's sleepless night is the turning point in the storyline of Esther. It seems like an insignificant and ordinary event, right? Like I said, we all have had sleepless nights. We know what those are like, and nothing extraordinary happened that we're aware of, at least, huh? By making the king's sleepless night the turning point of this story, the author takes the focus away from human action. 
Because the climax of the story is going to be Esther finally confronting Haman and making her request known to the king. That's the climax, but the turning point comes before. It's this moment, this sleepless night of the king. And by making this the turning point, the focus is taken away from human action. Karen Jobes says this, This reinforces the message that no one in the story, not even the most powerful person in the empire, is in control of what is about to happen. In spite of having all the power of the Persian Empire at his disposal, Haman, Haman's carefully laid plans were turned against him simply because the king had a sleepless night. The author is suggesting that beneath the surface of human decisions and actions in an unseen and uncontrollable power is an unseen and uncontrollable power at work which can be neither explained nor thwarted. The message of Esther is this. While God seems hidden, he is very much in control. He is ruling history, even when it doesn't seem like it. God is able to work even through the sleepless night of a king. And as we see throughout the narrative of Esther, he's able to work through weak and sinful people to fulfill his promises. God works through ordinary events. He works through uh, moments that seem insignificant to us in our lives. But what happens is that because God is the storyteller, because God is ultimately in control, he can sweep all of that ordinariness. And even in that ordinariness, our failures, our weakness of faith, our sin, he can sweep all of that up into his purposes and in the end tell a story that is grand, beautiful, and good. This is what the story of the Bible is all about. Uh, several years ago, I don't even remember how many years now, uh, Ariel, who's a member here at City Church, first stepped foot into this building. I'm telling her story with permission. Actually, if you don't believe me, she texted me like 20 minutes ago and said, don't mind at all. So I have proof still on my phone, just in case you doubted. She stepped foot for the first time in this building. Why did she? Because out of nowhere, she tells her story, she felt a desire to know more about who Jesus is. Ariel grew up in a home um, in which her father is Jewish, her mother was Sikh, um, and they were nominally so. They just basically followed cultural traditions. Um, but she went on a trip to Israel to try to reconnect with her father's roots. She came back, and like I said, all of a sudden had this urge, this desire to know more about Jesus. And so she reached out to a former college roommate who she remembered as a Christian and asked this former roommate where she should, what she should do. Roommate said, go to a church. What church? Go to city church. I don't know this person. That person has never been here Maybe that person is an angel. I literally have no idea. But she told Ariel, go to City Church of Wilmington. That's where I would go. So Ariel walks in the doors of this building. During the greeting time before the sermon, Shana Carney brings Ariel up to me. I figure, I assume at this point that uh, Ariel was brought by Shana. But come to find out, she had never met Shana. She met her in the back pew, and Shana said, I'll go introduce you to the pastor. So Ari and I, I talked, we agreed to get together for coffee. We actually got together in Cafe Delish, which no longer exists, which is now, where now the third place is located. 
So Ariel and I meet for coffee, and I basically tell her the story of God, tell her about Jesus. She's not ready to commit to Jesus yet, so she literally ends our meeting by saying, so what should I do next? Well, you need to get into community. You need to observe uh, the gospel lived out by people who follow Jesus, so get into a community group. She did that. Um, Long story short, God worked in Ariel's life in ordinary, insignificant events and moments to bring her to faith. And I will never forget the moment in which I sat across from her at the brouhaha in Trolley Square, and she was ready to commit, but she was afraid to be baptized because she was afraid that she would be ostracized by her family, that she would be disowned by her family with tears Rolling down her eyes, she told me, but I know that that's what I'm supposed to do. And so I had the joy of baptizing Ariel. She chose a spiritual identity over a cultural identity. And all of this took place in ordinary, seemingly insignificant events and moments of life. God is able to take the ordinary and sweep it up into his extraordinary purposes. And that actually is what he has done for us, the heart of the gospel. Because the hero, as we always say of the story, is not Esther, ultimately. It is within the literary structure of the book. But the hero of Esther in every book of the Bible is God. And God, in the person of Jesus, shows up to us in the most ordinary of ways, the most unexpected of ways, as a baby. He lives. He faces death, that moment of crisis. He's mocked. All of these things that we would not expect God in the form of the Messiah to have to endure, but he does. And why does he go to the cross and give his life for us? Out of love. So that by faith in him, not by trying to be good enough in God's story, not trying to protect ourselves in a cultural identity and story, but by faith in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we get attached to God's story. We become members of God's family And we are swept up into the purposes of God to the extent that our eternal destiny even is secure. Father, we thank you that you are telling a good and grand story. We thank you that we get to be a part of it as your people. I pray for those who are here among us this morning. Maybe they have come to this place very much in the same way that Ario came to this place the first time. We pray that you would work that you would bring about an awakening, a transformation. We pray that you would draw such people to yourself. We pray for those of us who know you and are walking with you, that we would continue to have a deep experience of your love for us to the extent that we would be willing to spend ourselves on behalf of others to demonstrate your love for the world. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.